God, so many of us live such busy lives, and we take responsibility for that. We have to take responsibility for that because so much of that is choice. Help us, at least in this time, but also over the course of our weeks, to, as much as it's up to us, to create space for you, that we might pay attention, that we might uh, listen well, that we might be attentive to you, to your spirit, to your word among us. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray in any way from your word, may they be completely forgotten forever. Pour into us. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to begin this morning with the book of Acts. I've referred a couple of times over the last couple of months to the book of Acts. We're studying it, uh, a group of men uh, that gather on Friday mornings. have been going through the book of Acts for a number of months now. And some of the themes and sort of points and highlights from that, uh, as we dig deeper and deeper on Friday mornings, keep ringing uh, back in my mind. Uh, in chapter 20 of the book of Acts, the author Luke continues to recount the different facets of Paul's now third missionary journey. He sort of went on three of these uh, long, 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 long multi-year excursions, uh, and um, we're in the third one of those in chapter 20 of the book of Acts. This uh, section of Acts reads very much like a travel log, which it is, but the author, Luke, includes all sorts of other interesting and important facets of things that went along, that happened along that journey uh, for Paul, with Paul, in this latter part of the book of Acts. So I want to highlight one of those this morning. So we're picking up the story in Acts chapter 20, uh, written by the author, Luke, who wrote the Gospel Luke, beginning at verse 1. Listen closely. This is God's Word. When the uproar in, in Ephesus... When the uproar in Ephesus had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, disciples of Jesus in Ephesus, and after encouraging them, Paul said goodbye and set out for Macedonia, which was across the Aegean Sea from Ephesus. Uh, Paul traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, so went south to Greece, where he stayed for three months. Possibly that those were the winter months where travel was more difficult, especially travel by sea. Because some Jews had plotted against Paul just as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia, in other words, take the land route back up from where he had come before crossing over the Aegean Sea again. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of uh, Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Segundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the prophet of Asia, province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us, probably by ship, and waited for us, waited for Paul and Luke and maybe others at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi uh, in the northern part of Macedonia after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Travel log. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, in other words, most likely people who had come to faith in Christ uh, there, Paul spoke to people, and because Paul intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. Again, permission granted? I'm going to stop right, stop right there, right at the end of chapter 7, somewhat abruptly, not to grant myself 
uh, permission to speak until midnight. I'm not suggesting that that's a good idea, that it was a good idea for Paul, uh, though he did, or certainly not in our context today. But uh, I am probably like Paul was, inclined to try to squeeze in as much as possible. Uh, Paul did before he hit the road and left his beloved uh, in Ephesus. But that's going to be our focus this morning, verse 7. Uh, what came right before that? On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. And this is one of the earliest references, if not the earliest reference, in the scriptures in the New Testament to the very early Christian practice of gathering on the first day of the week, in other words, Sundays, and to breaking bread at those gatherings. From the very beginning, or near the very beginning, followers of Jesus, people who were in Christ, people who had put their faith in Jesus, were very intentional about getting together with one another for the purpose of, among other things, studying the scriptures and worshiping God. Uh, this morning, I'm going to dig a little deeper into a little bit of what they did together. Uh, two things, uh, first one and then the other. To begin, the earliest followers of Jesus were all like Jesus Jewish. You know that, I assume. They were all Jewish, and Jesus was not out to start a new religion or to separate from the faith in which he had been born. Uh, that faith, that traditions of the one true God known to Israel through Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob, Adam and Eve, Noah, uh, David, Elijah, the other prophets. Jesus didn't set out to start a new religion, but he lived fully in the faith of the Hebrew people, the people of Israel, uh, who came to be known as the Jewish people, who at least since the time of Moses had taken their cue from God's pattern in creation and then from the law that God gave to Moses, and they rested on the seventh day. One, two, three, four, five, six, they worked as God had done in creation, and then they rested. They rested from their work, and they rested to God. The word Sabbath simply means cease. They stopped. They stopped work, and they stopped all activities and distractions that they might be focused and attentive on God, on his creation, on their well-being, on his glory, on worshiping him. That was the fixed rhythm of the Jewish people of which Jesus was a part, and all of his early followers were a part. That was the rhythm of their lives grounded in creation. But after Jesus' resurrection on the first day of the week, in other words, on a Sunday morning, Jesus' followers in the early church, those followers of Jesus, also began to gather on the first day of the week. So not only on the seventh day, on Sabbath, at the end of the sixth day, uh, sundown to sundown, that Sabbath, but they also began to gather on the first day of the week, on Sunday morning, to remember and to celebrate Jesus' resurrection, which we sang about. They didn't give up their Sabbath gatherings from Friday evening to Saturday evening, because everything was different. Uh, they just added this resurrection celebration. They could have continued with the Jewish Sabbath. Everything else about their lives remained influenced by the Jewish way. But also there was this, this thing that was new in their life. And so they gathered, not just on the Sabbath, but also Monday morning, Sunday mornings, first day of the week. We think of Monday as the first day of the week. I read something this week by Dr. Dan Allender that struck me. He's written, the resurrection of Jesus is not something that first and foremost brings comfort. The resurrection of Jesus is not something that first and foremost brings comfort. It brings disruption. Everything seems clear, but now you're saying, I don't see clearly, and in fact, what is dead will rise, asserts the resurrection of Jesus. He continues, so the question is, does the resurrection disrupt 
your marriage? Does it disrupt how you parent? Does it disrupt all the realities that are around you? The lives of the people we read about in Acts had come to believe in Jesus and his resurrection, and they had come to trust him. Their lives, by Jesus' resurrection, firmly grounded historically and previously in the Jewish faith, had been disrupted and turned upside down by the resurrection of Jesus. And so it was wholly appropriate that also the rhythm of their lives, and we all have rhythms of certain sorts, that the rhythms of their lives were, were affected. The resurrection of Jesus had become the central organizing truth of their lives. And so they gathered on the first day of the week, Sundays, to acknowledge that reality and to remember that reality and to be encouraged in that reality and to recalibrate and reorient their very lives around that reality. And the scriptures call us to, to do the same. In the words of the author of the book of Hebrews, don't give up meeting together on the first day of the week, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching, this forward-looking, the resurrection has changed everything. So no longer do they live in this only cyclical pattern. But Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his promise to come again has disrupted the rhythm so that they are living in a weekly cycle, but also always looking forward, looking ahead, anticipating something great. So travel for vacation, for work, we all travel in various ways, can get in the way of gathering, of one gathering with the body of Christ on the first day of the week. So I've made it a point over the course of my life, and don't take this as a boast, I hope it's not, to not travel on Sunday mornings, to never schedule flights on Sunday morning, to not have driving trips on Sunday morning, to not leave and go and be away from the body of Christ. If we're away, then we find a local body of Christ with whom to gather and worship. Always, every time. Most of us, 99% of the places we go, somewhere within some reasonable distance, there is a gathering of Jesus' people on Sunday morning, which is really cool. Like everywhere, Jesus has an outlet, a franchise. Everywhere, nearly, that we would go. So I've made it this point over the course of life, not to travel on Sunday mornings, not to allow outside things in our lives to disrupt this 2,000-year-old tradition and rhythm that I think is really important. And Paul, in his travels, at the mercy of a lot of individuals and circumstances and shift schedules, if the Apostle Paul could carve out time to stop and to set apart some time on a Sunday morning on his travels, so can I. I've shared with you all over the years about the blessing of joining other churches when we travel. Like, I hope, and I've encouraged you to do that, and I don't know if you do, but maybe some of you do. But there's nothing cooler than uh, connecting with a church that's really different than your home church, this church, whatever your home church is, and experiencing a different way of worship, a different way of being gathered, a different way, a different context, different practices different ways of singing and praying and learning and listening and rejoicing. There's nothing richer than that in a person's life. So I strongly, strongly, strongly encourage it. Experiencing the breath of the body of Christ, I always learn something. God always speaks to me something. God always opens my eyes to a new thing. My faith is always deepened and always broadened. This hasn't always been easy as a parent and as a family. Our kids... 
Lives may have been tougher than ours in this regard, missing all sorts of sporting events and games and competitions and opportunities and birthday parties that have been scheduled on Sunday mornings. One of my kids who's off uh, with children's ministry now is missing a soccer game right now that she really wants to be at, a part of her really wants to be at. She loves playing soccer. Those of us when we were kids loved playing sports. It's been not always an easy thing, but our kids have survived it, and I would argue they've even benefited and thrived because of those lines that we've drawn. Not too firmly. Of course, uh, none of this makes a person, makes, makes me or anyone else any better, any higher on a ladder or scale or a measure or better in God's eyes. We have to always guard against legalism and a legalistic perspective on things like this. But practicing the ancient rhythms of gathering on Sunday mornings can deepen and even solidify a person's faith and their devotion. And worshiping God with different congregations when, home, when not home deepens, broadens, enriches one's experiences and understandings and vision for the kingdom. Conversely, I think COVID has shown that getting out of the habit of meeting physically with the body of Christ and with other people in Christ on a regular basis on the first morning of the week all too often leads to drift and disconnection and dissolving of one's faith sometimes and even the disappearance of faith. Of course, we've been grateful for live stream and the technology of live stream over these last three years, especially during the height of the pandemic, and still for those who are unable, for various reasons, to be together, to gather together, to be in the midst of other people in person. Though we recognize that live stream has its limits and cannot fully replicate an in-person experience in which, as the author of the book of Hebrews wrote, Jesus' people can encourage one another and be encouraged. Love one another and be loved. Bless one another and be blessed. Serve one another and be served. Confess one's sin to others and hear others' confession. Forgive another person and hear God's declaration of forgiveness in one's life. These things are possible more so when we're together which I think was the point of the author of the book of Hebrews, particularly to this matter of forgiveness, which I'll pick up in a moment. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. And that breaking of bread was not just ordinary food, not just any ordinary meal, but rather what Paul called in his first letter to the Corinthian Christians, the Lord's Supper, what came to be known uh, as early as the first century, in which some Christians still call it today a love feast, or we're more commonly familiar with it called Eucharist, the Eucharist, or for us, communion. It was likely an ordinary meal like breakfast that was imbued with special meaning and significance and elements. Originally by Jesus at a Passover feast, the evening that he was betrayed, you know that story, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he took he gave thanks, he thanked, he broke the unleavened matzah bread and gave. Take, thank, break, give. He gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body and this is my blood. 
And then he said, do this in remembrance of me, thus instituting a practice from which Jesus' followers have continued to do without ceasing for two millennia. But what really is this thing that we call communion? What is, what is this thing that so, much, so many of us grew up with? For those who insist that the Bible be taken literally, do we understand Jesus' declaration that the bread and the wine become, became, become? The literal flesh and blood of Jesus, as do some Christians today, do, must we believe that if we want to take the Bible literally or seriously? Or do we agree with those who understand what Jesus was doing and what the church has always done to be more like a memorial? Something that just helps a person to remember, do this in remembrance of me. That helps a person to remember that particular Passover meal and also Jesus' atoning death on a cross. The mutilation of his body, the pouring out of his blood, just remembering that, which has value. Each of us gets to figure that out for ourselves, whether or not those words of Jesus are to be taken literally or those words of Jesus are to have prominence. Presbyterians have historically taken a bit of a middle way on this, not believing that the bread and wine ever literally become body and flesh, human body, human flesh and blood, but also believing that through presence and the action of the Holy Spirit, something more than just remembering happens when we eat this bread and drink this cup in this manner together. Something actually happens. The Holy Spirit is actually, literally, present. Wind, breath, spirit. But how to quantify that? How even to explain it? That's hard, which is why for hundreds of years, Christians have called this meal, along with baptism, a sacrament, a word which indirectly is derived from the Greek word mysterion, which means mystery. There's a lot that I don't understand about communion, Eucharist, love feast, Lord's Supper, and I never will, and that's okay. But so important was this meal that early Christians celebrated it and practiced it and did it each week, every week from the beginning that they might be reminded, and somehow much more than that, of the death of Jesus, somehow in their place, they would be reminded of the forgiveness of their sins. And also Jesus' resurrection that confirmed that everything that Jesus said and did and announced and proclaimed was true and would come true. And that his death was somehow really was the cosmic atonement for all of our sin. And that God in Christ was greater, stronger, more powerful than death. All of those things were reminded, reenacted, somehow through this meal. And we, too, and we need to not only be reminded of this in the presence of God's people every week, but also to somehow physically appropriate that. That's what we've been invited to, to ingest it, to apply it again to our minds, in our bodies, for our spirits. We don't believe that in the Lord's Supper, Jesus is somehow crucified again. Presbyterians don't believe that, not at all, but that somehow in that meal, we are 
mystically, we don't use that word a lot, mystically fed, nurtured, filled, awakened, revived. And not only are we strengthened, but somehow our union with Jesus is firmed up. In the last chapter of Luke's Gospel, same author as Acts, two of Jesus' disciples were walking along a road to a village called Emmaus, when the risen Jesus himself came and walked among them, but they were kept from recognizing him, Luke writes. We don't really understand that. Somehow it wasn't until that evening in their home over a meal that these two disciples finally recognized Jesus. Quote, when Jesus was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. So interesting. Take, give thanks, break, give, eyes open. Somehow in Jesus taking bread, giving thanks, breaking, giving eyes, people eyes were opened and a person was, they were in some, again, mystical way, united with Christ. This, the church has always believed, is more than just religion, but instead a relationship and maybe a gateway to a relationship in which a person is united with Christ. I don't use that language a lot. I haven't ever. I didn't hear it growing up. I wasn't encouraged to think in that way of union with Christ, which is so key to so much of the New Testament, as it turns out, when we look and listen and read carefully. For many people, a Christian is just a label or a category or a designation representing one's affiliation with a certain religion or faith, or it is an affirmation of a certain set of beliefs or a commitment to some moral code. For some people, and probably some of us, and especially those who value the realm of the mind and thinking, which we've talked about some lately, Paul talks about, emphasizes the importance of the renewing of our mind as it pertains to faith. The Christian faith exists primarily in one's head. I don't know if you can relate to that. I think some of you can. I don't know how many of us do. But the Christian faith exists primarily in one's head. But in the breaking of bread or the early church's agape feast, known from early times as the Lord's Supper, people are invited into this mysterious experience with Christ and of Christ. Yet, as most churches practice this, it is just a small piece of bread and a bit of fruit of the vine, and yet potentially also something much more profound than that. Again, mystery. Augustine of Hippo, who, aside from the Apostle Paul, was probably the most important and influential, smartest, I don't know, theologian of the first 500 years of the church described this meal and baptism as outward signs of inward grace, of God's inward moving, of God's inward activity. For us. Something happens there. God's doing something. A person may not always feel that or be aware of that or what God is doing, but God is present and active and accomplishing what God wills. In the words of the 20th century Scottish Calvinist theologian John Murray, union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Union with Christ is is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. 
The Apostle Paul, through whom God produced more of the New Testament books than any other person, never used the word Christian. Think about that. He never used the word Christian. But instead, in his writings, used the phrase, in Christ, 216 times. There's this inness, or this withness, or this union. We uh, think of Paul as one who emphasized the necessity and importance of salvation by grace through faith or belief, and that is true. But permeating everything he wrote, every book, every letter, was this idea of being united with Christ. The scriptures talk about us being in Christ and Christ being in us. Both ways. In the words of Jesus in his final discourse and high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we, he and his father, are one. I in them and you, his father, in me so that they may brought, be brought to complete unity. And what is that unity? There is this unity with one another. There's also this unity that Jesus talked about, that Paul talked about. And not just sort of bumping up against each other, but some sort of unity. And in the words of Paul, first to the church in Colossae and then uh, to the church in Galatia, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's more going on here than just belief, not That more that is not that more that is required of us, but rather it is the Lord Jesus entering us, taking up residence with us. Such is His desire. And this meal or this breaking of bread is one means through which God's grace is given to us, delivered to us, and even applied to us. We might say in sort of seeking to understand Jesus, the Scriptures, the Gospels, the various accounts of this, the writings of Paul. There's more going on here than just belief. Is this a mystery? Yes. Do I understand it all? No. Is there plenty about the eternally existing God that my mind cannot wrap itself around? Yes. Am I okay with this? Yes. We do not worship the Eucharist, but in it we seek the Lord Jesus and present ourselves to him as seekers, as people in need, as people who have nothing to offer but the confession of our sin. We bring nothing to the table. We have nothing to bring except who we are in all honesty. So I was thinking about this uh, yesterday. It occurred to me that often through church history, the priest has stood between the congregation and the elements, the body and 
blood, the bread and the wine, or the bread and the juice. Kind of like I'm standing right now. Though this is more about being pragmatic. But in the history of the church, especially for hundreds of years, the table was way back there. And it was the priest who mediated between the congregation, the people, and the bread and the juice, the body and the blood. And in some traditions, for hundreds and hundreds of years, it was only the priest who ate and drank, and not the congregation themselves, as if he was the mediator. When Calvin and the Reformers in the 1500s said, we've got to rethink all of this, Calvin thrust the table, rebuilt sanctuaries, and put the table out in the middle of the sanctuary, representing the invitation for all people to come, not just to eat and drink, but into a union with Christ. The priest or the pastor or the minister only being a facilitator of such and one who speaks those words, reminding and calling. And so, uh, forgive the term, because it's not especially Christian. But in this meal, we are invited to a mystical union, nor is it un-Christian. We're invited to a union with Christ, to a relationship, though that word doesn't occur in the scriptures in the way that we use it today. But to such, we are still invited where Christ is in us and we are in Christ. How that is accomplished is a mystery. How that happens is a mystery. Jesus began this with an actual meal, a Passover meal, in a way that fulfilled prophecy, what had been left incomplete, he completed, not so much outwardly, but in and through himself. As we call, come... We're invited to remember these things, but more than that, to present ourselves for a relationship. Open, honest, transparent, confessing, and asking God to unite and reunite himself to us. A work that's already done and already complete, but which we're invited to tap into again because we leak, because we forget, because we're constantly falling down and needing to be helped up. And the invitation to this table is not for the people who are good or right or just or loving. I had an encounter this week with someone who suggested that someone else maybe wasn't worthy or fitting or appropriate or good enough. Those words weren't used. But you know what I mean that that person didn't fit in, that that person wasn't welcome. In the history of the church, there was this thing called fencing the table. Are you familiar with that term, that phrase? Fencing the table. And over the course of the week, you had to do the right things and be good enough and go to confession and you would get a token from the church. And then you could present that token as sort of your ticket to communion on Sunday morning. Thank God for the Reformation. Thank God that he calls us to continually reform and rethink according to the scriptures, according to the word of God. Because we're so inclined to get off track. The qualifications for coming to this table are simply 
admission of one's need and one's sin and dependence on God's grace. That's it. Looking to him to provide what we can't provide for ourselves, looking to him to do what we can't do ourselves, acknowledging that God in Christ is the answer and is love. May we, every one of us, accept his invitation to this table, to this feast, to this mystery, that we might see him, that our eyes might be opened, that we might be filled, that we might experience the fullness of his grace, that his kingdom might come and that his glory might fill the whole earth, starting with each one of us. Let's pray. God, we do confess our lack of understanding, our bent, our predilections, our wants, our yearnings, our desires that sometimes go counter to your kingdom, that are overly focused on ourselves, that cling to things we ought not cling to, for safety and security and meaning and purpose. Save us from ourselves and from the world and from the evil one, from, in some cases, the church. Save us to yourself for your glory. Forgive and have mercy upon us as you promised. Help us to live in that mercy and to receive your mercy. Fill us with your spirit. Meet us in this meal. Open our eyes. Pour into us whatever you will. Make us available as you have made yourself available to us. In the name of Jesus, the crucified one and the risen one. Amen.